Now, when we talk about product and product management, most of what we see on the web is focusing on consumer or B2C products. But there are, as you might know, there are many flavors of product managers out there, such as platform and B2B PMs which we call them invisible PMs in this episode. And we focus on these invisible PMs in this show. We'll take you into the world, the kind of problems they're trying to tackle, some lessons learned, and a few actionable tips. Now, my guest today is Ajit Deepak. Ajit has been building and managing products uh, throughout his 20-year technology career, starting with programming roles in a financial and consumer sectors, engineering leadership in a digital media space, and PM positions in sports tech, live events, DevOps, and insurtech industries. Now, currently on Amazon, Ajit has intentionally forged a path in product spanning technical B2C and B2B roles and has taken a keen interest in teaching and developing the next generations of product managers. Hey, I'm your host, Cyrus Slayman, and welcome to PM Hub Podcast, a show dedicated to bringing you fresh and unique insights from product leaders and tech entrepreneurs. All right, Ajit, welcome to PM Hub. Thank you. All right, it's great to have you today. I'm very excited to talk about this very interesting topic of invisible product managers with you today. Uh, but, you know, uh, product is such an interesting and cool journey, and we all have different paths into it. I'm curious to hear more about your journey into product. Yeah, absolutely. So I've been in the the technology space for for 20 years. Uh, I started off as a, a hands-on keyboard engineer uh, right out of school, uh, and I did that for you know the better part of 15 years. And uh, at a certain point, I, I decided you know what I'm going to write my my last for loop. I've, I think I have more to offer in front of the keyboard than behind. So I wanted to move more into you know engineering leadership. And, and that was really my second arc. Uh, I had an opportunity to work my way up to a director of engineering uh, role, uh, overseeing a, a department of over 30 engineers. Um, and, uh, you know, that was a great experience. And it really kind of culminated, uh, you know, even going back to the first arc, my time on the, on the, the kind of build side, you know, spending time uh, on how are we solving a particular problem. But as I, as I got to, you know, 2014, 2015, I found myself more and more interested in the what and the why of, of product and, and why are we building the solutions that we're building? Um, you know, I had a chance to interface more with a business uh, in, in my last role on the engineering side. So I, I just felt a real draw to, to, to product management and really focusing on the 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 why uh, of a particular problem or a particular product and understanding you know users their problems and and how we can make their lives better um, so that's really uh, taken me to my 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 current arc my third arc which uh, which is product of course product management uh, I've been uh, blessed to be able to play that role in a, in, in a variety of settings technical PM uh, where I owned an API product. Uh, I, I was a B2B product manager uh, for very complex technical product pager duty. Um, I've had a chance to be a product leader. I was actually the, the, the first uh, product manager hired at uh, Cover, which was uh, an, an insure tech startup. Uh, and, uh, and it's been very satisfying to, to play all these roles, to wear all these different hats uh, and, and really uh, just be immerse myself in in our, our profession, which you know I'll state my bias up front. I think is the best one in the world. 
<laughs> for sure. And I think you have one of the most clear-cut paths into product. You know, started off from coding, then you get to management of engineering management, and then you dabble into the business side, and then you switch to product. One of those, you know, very clean-cut paths, I'd call in the product. I love that. <laughs> uh, now, uh, how about you, Karen, though? You're at Amazon right now, right? Yes. Uh, so I work as a, a, a senior product manager uh, technical at, at Amazon. I'm part of the, the last mile technology uh, team. So we own the technology that, that uh, enables the package to, to come from the delivery station uh, right to you, the customer. Um, so my specific area of ownership is, is what's called doorstep services. So this is anytime there's an interaction between the driver and the customer, uh, any tasks that that may be involved in that, uh, that would be uh, an area that that I'm looking to to understand and improve. So a couple examples of that um, in in certain uh, marketplaces, Amazon will deliver age restricted goods like alcohol. Uh, obviously, we have to make sure that we're delivering to someone that's age of majority. So we actually have a whole age verification flow, um, and 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 that's part of the uh, the mobile app that our drivers use. Um, we also have uh, uh, other tasks that can happen at the doorstep. If, if a customer is returning an item, the driver will be, you know, verifying that that item is is actually what they they should be returning. It's it's not fraudulent or damaged in any way. Uh, and in in places like India, we actually even do you know payment on delivery. So these are all interactions that happen, you know, right at the doorstep. And and these are all. Uh, areas that I own from a product perspective. Uh, I, I do want to add that you know while I am an Amazon uh, employee, that, you know my, my talk today is, is strictly my own views uh, rather than anything that's you know official or endorsed by my employer. Yeah, that's all fair. Cool. Thanks for sharing uh, your your area of uh, work with Amazon last month. It's pretty sounds like a lot of cool stuff happening there. Uh, now let's dive right into the topic at Hanaji. Uh, I'd love if you can share with our audience. You know, what are we talking about when we say invisible product managers? Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned, I've been in the product space for, you know, the better part of a decade. Um, and I've, I've been fortunate enough to, to spend time not only learning and immersing uh, myself in, in, you know, the world of product management, but also kind of teaching and, and coaching. Uh, and I've, I've noticed in my journey that when, when we say product, you know, PM, product management, we almost always talk about a consumer product, you know, in the B2C space where there is, a, you know, a, a UI, whether it's a, a web app or a, a mobile app. So when I was, you know, earlier in my journey in those, um, you know, the technical PM role I mentioned earlier or the B2B role at PagerDuty, uh, I found that my day-to-day -day was a lot different from uh what you see expressed in the community, right? You know, if you, you read up on best practices, you, you read up on user research and so on, if it's always expressed in terms of a consumer product, what do you take as someone that's not working uh, with that sort of product? What do you take if, if you are working on, say, an API that, that doesn't have a UI? You know, how, how do you do uh, design work or, or, or user testing when you're looking at something like that. Um, so for me, uh, you know, I, I really felt uh, that, I really feel rather that there's a missing dimension um, that, uh, we, you know, out there in our community. 
and I'm excited to you know speak today to to really speak to to those uh, uh, you know PMs that were in my shoes um, you know on the on the technical uh, PM side that are on you know working on very complex B2B products um, because again you're not really seeing this talked about too often in in our space and you know one of the things I think we're going to talk about repeatedly in our time today is that you know we're all product people, right? The, the product principles are the same, but what we focus on and our tactics day to day are, are vastly different um, when we're looking at, you know, the, when we're comparing the B2B space, the B2C space, you know, technical products versus consumer products. Uh, so I'm excited to share, you know, what I've learned and, and my wisdom today uh, on the, those differences. 100%. And, you know, not only, I guess, we're wrapping uh, B2B PMs today, but also it's going to be you know, uh, an eye-opening uh, chat for, uh, you know, other B2, B2C PMs out there to get to know this whole uh, space of uh, B2B PMs better. So I'm sure it's going to be a lot for everyone to get some value out of. Uh, now, who are, who, are, who are we solving for as an invisible PM, Ajit? Yeah, so it's, uh, I think it's just the people that we've, we've classified now as, uh, as invisible, right? Those, those people that are working on, you know, uh, B2B products, uh, again, uh, very complex, oftentimes very complex. There's a lot of domain knowledge because they're enabling, you know, workers in a particular industry or a function to do something, uh, to complete a task that that's critical to their jobs. Um, also, uh, you know, we're also looking at people that, that could be uh, working more on backend systems. So APIs, microservices, I love what you said a moment ago, which is, you know, we do uh, we do want consumer PMs to tune in and listen to this because we live in a world, uh, you know, Cyrus, as you know, that apps are built on tops of other apps, right? Um, right? Everything is layered. And so understanding what the the challenges uh, that, you know, your backend colleague who owns all the microservices that your app now, you know, depends on to, to run to service your consumer, that, that's still going to be, uh, you know, a valuable use of your time. Uh, and it's going to be valuable for you to understand, you know, your colleagues day to day better, what their challenges are. Because, uh, uh, again, that's only going to be beneficial for, for your relationship. Um, you know, just as your products have a relationship, you know, the, the consumer apps built on those back end systems. It's, it's important for the PMs to, to really understand and, and have a strong relationship as well. So... Just coming back to this idea, as we mentioned before, right? The principles are the same, but the tactics are different. Um, just to kind of speak to that a little bit, um, you know, when when I was a uh, an API product manager, you know, I felt the need to to do a lot of the the discovery work that you hear talked about in you know some of my bibles, like you know Marty Kagan's Inspired and so on, but again how do i translate that into the into the world of apis in which i you know i found myself you know who are my users um you know with a consumer app we, we you know there's there's article after article there's blog after blog there's webinar after webinar podcast after podcast on you know user research and you know ab testing and focus groups and surveys and so on again how do i apply that when when i own an api um, well, it's just, again, recognizing that now my user is not the consumer, it's a developer. So I, I'm not talking about, uh, you know, the consumer and, and CX, I'm talking about a developer and, and DX, developer experience, right? So I'm 
I'm focused. So again, principles are the same, tactics are different. When you're on the, the consumer side, you're often looking at things like onboarding, how, how easy it is for the consumer to discover my product, to trial my product. Same thing's actually true on the API side. Um, but again, the tactics are different. Now your discovery is, is often happening you know, in developer communities. And the, the onboarding of your product is, do you have a, you know, an, an API playground for a developer to just you know, whip up something quick and understand how your API works? You know, do you have a very well documented and commented SDK that they can quickly download and just start playing with? Um, because if you don't, you're way behind uh, in, in terms of other API products. And that means you're just not going to get you know, those developers uh, you know, using and adopting your product, and, and that's not going to lead to success for you. Um, so similarly, you know, on, the, on the B2C side, uh, excuse me, on the B2B side, again, there's just some fundamental differences um, that, that you know, really just you have to kind of absorb in terms of your mental model. If you think about the consumer and consumer apps, whether it's you know, things like Twitter or Netflix, you're always trying to get the consumer to linger, to use those apps, to use those experiences repeatedly and for longer and longer intervals. That's a complete my, uh, you know, shift in mind, uh, you know, kind of mental approach when it comes to B2B products. B2B products are actually almost the opposite. You want your, your user to come in, use the, the product for whatever function they need it for, and then move on to whatever the next task is in their day. The, in, indeed, if they're sitting on the same screen, you know, on a B2B product, that, that could be a red flag that they're, they're lost, something's happening that, that they're confused by, they don't know what to do, et cetera. So again, there's a, a real contrast in terms of, you know, how the, the, the user will use a B2C product uh, versus a B2B product. And that means as product managers, we have to be, you know, very different in terms of our thinking uh, and, and how we define success uh, when we're dealing with those two different types. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I guess over my days of coding, I remember, you know, dealing with some APIs where, you know, documentation was so clear on how, what we can do with this API and then what kind of calls you can make into it. As compared to some, which was super abstract and so vague. I totally can relate to that from my days for sure. Uh, now, Talking about the landscape, uh, if, if you want to differentiate, you talked about it a little bit. I'm curious if you can kind of like get, give us more details. How is the landscape different for a B2B versus a B2C product? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, there are a number of differences in addition to the ones that we've, we've just talked about. And I think it, it comes, you know, all the way back to just the relationship between the product and its users, right? In, in the case of consumer apps, you know, your relationship is is very flat, it's very linear. You, you have a consumer, uh, you know, the customer discovers your product, they, they, they trial it, um, and then they, they buy. Um, or in the case of, let's say, like a freemium product, uh, they, they may just be on that free tier and then they have some sort of in-app purchase that, that, you know, that's how you're getting, you know, revenue from them. Uh, and if all of that goes well, they'll, they'll renew or they continue to, to, to make purchases in the app. In the B2B space, you just have more players and, and, and structures to contend with. Um, in the B2B space, your user is not 
your buyer. Right. Typically, the user. So I'll just, I'll just give the example of, of my time at PagerDuty. You know, the user was, you know, a developer, or someone on the DevOps side, someone whose job it was to keep a particular service up, whether that was a website, whether that was some backend service, database, etc. That that person, that team's job was to keep that service up and running. And then, if it wasn't, they needed to know about it right away. And you know, PagerDuty's value proposition was to alert you. Uh, in you know as many ways and as efficiently as possible, so you could jump in. We always use the, the the metaphor of a responder. Just as you have an ambulance for medical problems, you needed digital responders to deal with digital you know outages and emergencies. So that's that's the user um, that 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 I was you know working with and whose day I was trying to make better. But the buyer was the manager of that team or the, the, the VP or the executive. And that person has a, a, a completely different lens on the product. So, you know, the, the user, um, he wants to know, uh, he or she wants to know, how quickly are those alerts going to come to me? What happens if it's two in the morning? How are you going to uh, wake me up? Uh, what happens if I'm driving and I get the alert? So those are the, the kind of specific user challenges we're trying to solve. The buyer has their own set of of concerns. Um, you know, talk to me about pricing. Talk to me about you know data management. I'm sending you all these signals, and you're you know sending signals back. Do I own that data? Do you? Um, what does privacy you know look like? Um, do you have nice integrations, single sign-on? Do all my, you know, uh, you know, developers have to remember a whole bunch of new passwords and so on? So the buyer is typically going to talk to you about like what I call CIO topics, um, you know, privacy, security, data management, etc. Um, and whereas your users are are much more focused on the value that your product is going to drive to them and how you're going to make their day easier. So right away, it's it's again a different landscape for the B2B uh, PM. It's almost like you have for every one uh, sale, you have two people that you've got to you know work with and, and keep happy. Um, and another thing I want to speak to in, in uh, again on the B2B side is that there's this notion of what I call disproportionate customers. You know, again, when the consumer product, you know, you think about something like Netflix, it's like you know you've got that. Kind of one-to-one -one relationship with with Netflix. I'm a consumer, and here's the service. But if you think about how B2B products are are designed and monetized, you can have, you know, these kind of disproportionate customers. If if I'm selling, uh, you know, on a per seat basis, uh, as we did in, uh, for example, uh, PagerDuty, uh, and this is a very common, you know, B2B uh, monetization uh, strategy, then large accounts will will dominate. Uh, your user base, right? So if you have a large enterprise, um, that that's going to have a, a larger impact in terms of your product, your strategy, your sales motion, and so on, than you know a, a whole bunch of smaller groups. Um, similarly, on the API side, a lot of APIs nowadays are monetized by volume. So if I've got a large enterprise um, that is firing over uh, you know, millions and millions of API calls, uh, everyone else might just be a rounding error. Uh, you know, I can give you an example. My time at Audience View, uh, this, they did software, for, they do software for live events. Um, you know, the, the big guys on Broadway or the West End, 
um, these people would be sending, you know, millions and millions of API calls to discover, you know, which which shows are being uh, are, are being put upon, you know, Broadway or, or in London. And then you've got all these other guys and, you know, they barely appear on the graph. So now you've got an, another kind of dimension to contend with. You've got, you know, these very large accounts that will disproportionately influence your product, your strategy, uh, your uptime. Um, and, and again, that just doesn't have a parallel on the, on the consumer side. So it's another thing to, 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 to keep in mind and, and be aware of as a difference. And then maybe my last thing, uh, I know we've talked about challenges for the B2B space. One thing that I, I found to be actually easier when you're on the B2B side is getting feedback. Um, if you think about how often you've answered a user survey for a consumer product, you know, most of the time that just goes straight into your end, your, your spam. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's not something you take up, but um, on the B2B side, uh, I've, I've found that um, your users are are way more engaged in terms of giving you feedback. They'll spend hours talking to you about uh, your product. Hey, I want to beta test this feature um, because you're obviously there to make their workday that much more efficient, that much easier for them. So they're they're highly motivated to uh, to give you uh, the feedback and 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 uh, to inspire you to. To, to make that next improvement that, that can help them. Um, so, so yeah, uh, as indicated, there's certainly a, a lot of differences. Um, and, and again, coming back to it, principles are the same, but the tactics, you really have to adapt them in light of uh, in, in this different landscape and, and, and these differences between the B2B and B2C world. Like what you hear so far, make sure to never miss an episode by clicking on the subscribe button now. This podcast has been made possible by listeners like yourself, and I'm thankful for your support. Now, let's head back to the show. Awesome. So I guess the favorite question, I guess, for our B2B uh, PMs out there and, you know, working with the sales enablement and sales team, how do you how do you handle, you know, saying no to the constant uh, feature requests from from sales organization? Yeah, so I think the first thing to think about is, and, and this was something that was a shift for me, um, you really do need to think of sales. When you're on the B2B side, uh, you really do need to think of sales as a distinct customer um, with their own needs. They're, they're essentially a persona and you can have the best product in the world. You know, It can be the best from an engineering perspective, but if you don't have the enablement, the materials, um, if you can't inspire your sales colleagues with the ability to go out and, and sell the product, um, the, the technical success is not going to matter. Um, so th that shift for me was really important. Um, and I really enjoyed working with, uh, with, with, with my sales colleagues. I actually love the idea of sales enablement. Happy to do another uh, more focused talk on, on that uh, subject whenever you like. Um, but to your question, I don't think it's always about saying no to the requests. I think it's really about trying to strike a balance between the request and then the impact that that's going to have on the product. So usually when you get these requests, um, they often come in. There's, there's usually just a benefit for a single customer. Usually it's a large customer that we're trying to you know, renew or expand. And, and so the challenge, I think, for PMs is, is really to figure out, is there a way to shape the request so that it's going to benefit a broader group of customers than just 
the customer that's requesting it. Um, so can you actually leverage the investment that you're being asked to make, uh, move it away from just a one-off um, and, and actually have it impact a wider group of people? Um, and you know, I always try to think of that mental model of, will this create on-ramps on to the product for, for many different customers, different segments and so on? Or is this just gonna be a one-off for this customer the danger there is you just end up with some sort of Frankenstein product uh, rather than something that's, you know, enabling a larger and larger, uh, you know, set of values for more and more customers over time. So these situations really force you down the road of, of negotiation and, and being very precise about what is the ask. Um, you know, another common problem is that the request will come in as fully baked solutions. And so you often have to push back against that and say, well, you know, don't give me the answer. Let's talk more about the customer problem. And uh, so there is a bit of a, a kind of art and science to this in terms of just constantly probing on the, the, the customer problem and getting really precise and then seeing if there is a way to, to, to put that benefit into the product at scale. Um, so let's give an example. Um, I can I can give you one from my time at, at PagerDuty. So we had a large client, you know, one of the top three uh, uh, in in our, uh, our our user base. Uh, they came in. It was you know classic renewal case, and they were saying, look, we we just don't feel that we can expand unless you solve these these concerns around uh, alerting. Now alerting is as core as it gets to PagerDuty um, in terms of the value prop and what the platform does. So when they were asking us to, to change it, you know, it was just almost immediately just a knee-jerk reaction. No, like we, we, we can't, you know, change such a fundamental part of, of our product just for, just for you. Um, but this is where, you know, again, I, I was able to come in and, and, and spend time with the, the customer that was making this request with our salespeople, with the engineering people, and really do that, that negotiation, do that probing, understand the problem better. And there were kind of two things that came about of that, right? One was just, they had made, they had made a request to improve some of the performance of, of, of our alerting. And, you know, these were improvements that we were going to make anyway. So whenever you can get, you know, new revenue to, to make kind of R&D improvements, um, you know, that's, that's a win-win. Um, the, the next, uh, kind of part of their request was really just pushing the limits of, of what the platform was doing with respect to the alerting feature. Um, and, you know, when we started to actually look into this, uh, you know, we found that a lot of the, the limits that they were there, that they were questioning, um, were just historical limits. Um, and and so you really did need to spend that time and understand, well, why is this limit here? Is there actually a technical reason for it? Or is this just one of those historical limits that's just always been there and we've never really you know, taken the opportunity to understand why it's there and, and maybe expand it? And so it, it ended up being quite a useful exercise um, because we were actually able over the course of two quarters to you know, deliver the performance improvements, um, but then also really understand you know, the limits to, to the system and, and, and actually make a, a set of improvements that not only worked for this large customer, but it turns out that could actually be useful for all of our enterprise customers. Um, so it, it, again, it was a, a really great example, a really good case study for me in my career 
to, to see the power of negotiation, to see the power of um, focusing on the, the, the problem um, and, and, you know, looking past the knee-jerk reaction to just say no. Yeah. No, that's that's amazing. Thanks for sharing uh, that that great example. It really elaborated your point on it. Now, I wanted to ask uh, two uh, kind of questions that we could focus on, like actions for for our folks out there. Let's say uh, common situations. I guess the first one was about you know how how to interface with a large, uh, let's say hundred plus sales and success organization. Yeah, so um, that kind of just builds back into the the experience we just talked about. So. Um, at you know successful B2B co- companies, um, you are dealing with a large sales organization. At, at, at PagerDuty, when I was there, we had you know in excess of 200 reps. Um, and it's so easy to just be drowned by all the different asks. Uh, and these are you know your colleagues that are just doing their job. They're trying to hit their quota and uh, you know get, uh, get 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 their compensation and, and so on. So um, you really do have to put structures and mechanisms in place so that you're not drowned out by all these asks. And so there's a, a couple actionable things that 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 I would want to pass on to to the community. Right. First, make it. Uh, make it proactive uh, and and make it predictable. So what I would uh, what I've always encouraged is have some sort of monthly demo or enablement session where you're going out to the sales uh, to your sales colleagues and saying, hey, this is what's new. This is what's this is what's coming. Uh, you're not waiting for them to 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 bombard you with all these specific asks. You're you're going out and saying this is what we're we're actually up to. You can even do a look ahead. You know this is what's coming next uh, next quarter and so on. Um, and what that does is, is a few things, right? It it gives them a constant stream of information that they can take back to their customers or their prospects and say, hey, this is what's new. This is what's exciting about uh, about the product. But it also kind of, you know, in an inverse sense, tells them what you're not going to do. Because, hey, this is what we're working on. This is what we've delivered. This is what's coming next. It it already kind of takes the air or the space away from them hitting you up for, hey, I know we haven't talked about this, but I have this, you know, kind of out of left field request. Can you work on it? It's like, did you see it in the presentation? Did you see us talk about it? So unfortunately, you know, we're on to to other commitments, but let's talk further, right? So it it gives you that opportunity to, to share, to enable, but then it gives you a very diplomatic uh, kind of position uh, when you do have to say no or, or that your focus uh, is, is elsewhere. Um, kind of building into that, though, let's also recognize that your sales colleagues, it's not a flat organization. Um, there are leaders, you know, there's a hierarchy there. Um, and it's true on the success side as well. Um, so it's really important to cultivate those relationships. I think, you know, with product, it, it really is all about relationships, the relationship you have with your users, but also, you know, on the B2B side, sales and success and so on. So cultivate those relationships, um, you know, talk to their leadership, understand, you know, what are some of the sales targets and, and what's going to make those targets very difficult to achieve? Are there competitive threats? Is it a new vertical that we've never pursued before and so we have to just write a whole bunch of material for that domain um understand what those challenges are uh and that's just going to make you know your your job and your collaboration with that organization uh you know that much easier hopefully a lot of this stuff is coming down from your product leadership as well uh but working you know horizontally uh you know as i said it's it's always worth the investment 
I love that. I love that. Now, my next question was about uh, public APIs and how do you go about, how do you suggest going about introducing a new version of a public API? Yeah, so again, going back to what we've, you know, repeated a few times, you know, principles are the same, but but the products are, are the tactics are, are different when, when you've got such a product, right? So I'll, I'll, I'll go back to my time at, at AudienceView where I was managing uh, a, a public API. Uh, so this was used to discover uh, live events that customers would be interested in. Uh, then of course, to, uh, to, to, to purchase you know, tickets to that event. So uh, in my time there, we actually went from a, a rather antiquated uh, API, it was you know, XML session-based, um, to kind of old and busted. And then we were introducing you know, the new hotness of you know, JSON, RESTful, you know, node-based. And so we had uh, a, a number of challenges there, but again, if you look at it through that kind of product lens, um, again, the principles helped us navigate those different set of tactics. So first it was understand the why. Why do we need to introduce this? Um, you know, there were internal reasons. Um, we didn't want to, you know, keep investing in, in something that was just antiquated from a technology perspective. But we also heard from our, 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 our API customers that, hey, it's getting harder and harder for me to work with your, um, your product. You know, the, the kind of next generation of APIs has appeared. This is what I want to work on. Um, uh, you know, the API is very chatty and there are kind of performance problems. So we knew that we were we were in that kind of win-win situation. We could retire kind of some of the technical debt. We could also enable better experiences, better performance for our customers. Um, but then, of course, we, we can't just, you know, go all into that. You know, we need to define that upgrade path. We need to define a migration strategy. This is where we need to understand, well, who's using the old and how are they using it? So this is where analytics are key, you know, understanding the, the, the customer in terms of where they are and then being able to craft a path for where you want to take them. Um, so this is where we, we, we enumerated that strategy. Let's stand up the 2.0. Let's, uh, you, you know, have... Um, you know, kind of equal space, have the customer be able to run them side by side, you know, developers run the existing, you know, uh, you know, their existing products with the, the version one, then they're able to go into a sandbox environment and, and run version two. And, and, you know, we're not, we don't have to pitch them on anything. They can see themselves that their application is snappier, that they're, you know, they're getting better performance, smaller footprint, et cetera. So, and that's a, that's a beautiful snowball to, to just, you know, see once these things start going. Um, based on that, based on the the insights that you're getting from that sort of analysis and planning that migration, you're then able to plan the when. You're able to start talking about end of life. You're able to start talking about when you're no longer going to support things. And and Cyrus, I can't overestimate the importance of data here because oftentimes people will look at these things in a very top-down kind of mechanical way. You know, I have an API that has 300 endpoints. Oh my God, it's gonna take me three years. But when you look at the, the actual data, you realize that as with a lot of products, there's an 80-20 rule. Of those 300 endpoints, maybe, you know, 50 or less are being used all the time. And the other ones not being used at all. So. If it's not being used, you don't need to migrate it. You can just deprecate it. You know, your your analytics will tell you that, hey, that's not a problem. Uh, and even if there is, you know, one or two kind of hangers on, you just reach out to them individually. Um, 
So, so again, I can't overstate the importance of data. And, and as product people, we, we talk about that all the time. Right? Um, finally, again, you've now kind of figured out the when you can control your rollout. Um, and then as you start to cut you know, more and more people over to that version 2.0, you can measure the success. If you haven't already validated uh, things on a kind of point by point basis, you're going to certainly see it in the aggregate as, as you see, hey, I've moved, you know, 100,000 calls a week to, to the V2. You're validating that, you know, it's performant, it's, it's what you need it to be from a reliability standpoint. And then again, it just continues to accelerate. And, and next thing you know, you've, you've got your V2, everyone's cut over, uh, V1 is, is safe to be deprecated, and, uh, you know, you're ready for, for the next adventure. So, so Ajit, uh, what are some lessons that, you know, a PM can learn from an invisible product manager? So I think just summing up, you know, what we've talked about, it, it, it really is, um, there, there's probably two takeaways that I, I'd want the community to think about. One is that let's recognize a product is a, is a craft um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're going to benefit by practicing that craft in as many different environments as, as we can. Uh, I'm a motorcycle rider and, you know, one of the things we talk about in, in that sport is, you know, you become a more well-rounded rider by, by, by taking your bike to different environments, road, track, dirt, et cetera. So I think the same thing is true for, for, for product. Um, I've gone through the journey of B2B, B2C technical, you know, products, API products, and so on. And I've learned and, and benefited from being in each of those spaces. So uh, more, more at like a, a kind of almost a career level, um, don't shy away from these things. These are um, opportunities to practice your craft, to learn some of these different tactics. And it's, it's only going to, you know, give you more tools as, as you go, uh, you know, further into your product journey. Um, but really just, you know, coming back to, uh, even someone that's in the say the B2C side, just recognize that there are a lot of these different tactics, um, and 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 these are these are tools and 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 opportunities for you to to understand and you know have empathy with uh, in terms of your colleagues. Um, you know, again, as we've talked about, you're focusing on different elements of of the journey. On the B2C B2B side, excuse me, you're spending more time uh, talking about purchasing, pricing, uh, appealing to executives, making sure that you have an integration strategy that's going to work with uh, all the other you know, products uh, in the space. Um, so again, these are all uh, you know, different tactics than you, maybe you're going to see on the, the, the B2C side, but I, I think that can only make you a more well-rounded PM. Right on, 100%. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, now, uh, I'm also curious to know, Ajit, you're you're pretty active in the community, and I'm curious to know how do you help uh, PMs out there. Uh, so there's two things that um, I, I try to do to to give back to the the the, the PM community. Um, so for those that are already in uh, a product management role, uh, I, I do uh, have a mentorship program. I, I work with a limited number of of product managers, typically five or less. Uh, and it's an opportunity to to work one on one with me, you know, providing actionable advice uh, either on your current role or if you're you're looking to, uh, to 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 make a change in in your career. Uh, if if there's anyone out there that's interested in that mentorship, just reach out to me uh, via LinkedIn. Happy to have a conversation. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, um, I, I've been working with 
um, a, a new community, how to product and, and collab. Um, these are um, for aspiring PMs. It's, it's an eight-week course um, that allows, uh, you're, you're put together with a team of developers and designers, and it's you know eight weeks to, to learn about uh, product management and to actually ship a product. So it's a young community. It's just a second cohort that's kicking off uh, uh, in November. Uh, but I'm I'm happy to be involved in in helping to ramp up the the next generation of product managers. Awesome, awesome. Thank you so much, Sajid. Thanks for coming on the show and talking about uh, sharing your thoughts with us on the whole subject of invisible product managers. Thank you so much. A real pleasure. That's it for this week's episode of PMR Podcast, guys. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed today's show. And if you did, feel free to share on your social media and your LinkedIn. Leave a five-star review so we can reach our audience. And if you have any suggestions to make this show better, please send me an email to cyrus at productmanagerhub.org. Or you can just add me on LinkedIn. Now, you can get all the tips and action items uh, from this episode for free at this bit link I'm going to give you. It's bit.ly forward slash pmhub21. Also subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes. I'm Sayur Sleiman and until next show, stay safe and healthy.